Two hours of homegrown music. Irish Beats. On Beat. How's it going? Rob O'Connor from Beat 102-103 here with another podcast introduction. The other day I had a great chat with Cormac Battle. He might be known to Manny now as a DJ on 2FM, but for those of us of a certain age, we remember him as the lead singer in the band Curb Dog from the 1990s. Uh, I had a chat with him because we are about to receive vinyl reissues of both Curb Dog albums, the eponymous debut from 1994 and their 1997 follow-up on The Turn. We spoke about his memories of the Kilkenny guitar scene from the 1990s, how they went from playing the Pump House on Parliament Street to recording in the legendary Sound City in Los Angeles. We talked about songwriting and production and how Cormac felt when Curb Dog were unceremoniously dropped by their record label after their second album. He also gave some advice for young musicians coming up today, which is definitely worth listening to. Anyway, I began the chat by asking Cormac why Curb Dog were re-releasing their albums now. Um, well, Rob, to be honest, like um, th- these guys in, in the UK approached us about um, re-releasing the two albums that the, the Curb Dog did because they figured that there was um, a loyal audience out there who really wanted to have these records as, you know, artefacts. Um, you know, it's on Spotify. It's you know, you can. I, they're they're on CD, but they were, they were, they were deleted. And there wasn't that many made of them at the time when they came out. In, what is it? Around ninety four on the first one, ninety seven on the second one. So um, they, we, I said, I thought that's you're mad. Like you know, no one's really going to want these because you know they it's it's available if you want it right now um, to listen to. So I said, if you want to do, yeah, we said, yeah, go ahead, uh, and. Lo and behold, when they did it and they got the campaign rolling, the, the demand was much, much higher than, I, than I'd imagined. And I, like, I know there's been a resurgence in interest in vinyl and so on, but it seems that um, a lot of our fans uh, seem to be completists. They like to have um, everything that we've done um, and, you know, to have uh, what we've done on, on, on vinyl as well uh, is, it's, you know, they weren't available before and they're as far as I know, on the turn, the second album, some of them were changing hands for 300 quid online. So to be able to bring them out and for, for people to, to have them in their collection was great. And for a demand to be there, I was really surprised about it. And it, it seems like it is. So that, that, was, um, that was good news for us. It's, I'd like to take you back to the 1990s, which would have been, I suppose, the Curb Dog heyday. Now, I, I think I saw you guys play... I, I'm going to say 1992 in the Kells Community Hall uh, in County Kilkenny. I'm not 100% sure if that's true because I, I, I was a teenager and we were kind of basically being brought to gigs. It was great. Um, do, do you remember playing the Kells Community Hall? I, I'm not sure if I remember it. Possibly. But I remember playing one in Doro, all right. There was a hall. And Kells, um, it's, it's very possible because we played... At the time, around 92, before we got a record deal and all that, or as we were just about to get one, we were playing in, like, halls around Kilkenny. These nearly, like, dance hall eras. Um, you know, these dry gigs where they're selling, you know, crisps and, and Coke yeah. and Fanta. Um, and yeah, and that's quite 
possible that we played out in Kells. You know, these, and there was, I don't know if they were, and they weren't, they weren't hugely well attended gigs, but it's quite possible you saw us in Kells in a community hall when you were like 13 years age, of age and your parents collecting you afterwards. That's very possible, yeah. So, but at the time, right, so we're talking about the kind of the early to mid 90s. And yeah. at the time in Kilkenny, there, there was a right buzz around some bands. So, I mean, there's, there's so there's Curb Dog. Then I'm thinking about bands like My My Little Funhouse, yeah, and Engine Alley, Engine Alley, yeah, and and there was there was a right nexus of activity based around Kilkenny. Can, can you recall what it was like at the time? I can actually, yeah, because like it was it well, we, we we it was it wasn't that weird to us. Like around 1988, 89, was, Kilkenny had a very very um vibrant and there was scene music scene like um uh we there was a very big kind of indie scene everybody was in a band you know everyone was in everyone else's band and there was we were all playing gigs all the time um it was it was predominantly driven by kind of like the sort of shoegazy scene like the Jesus and Mary chain and all that kind of stuff um and it wasn't really a metal or grungy thing at that stage but I remember when bands would come to Ireland, they would often put in, they'd, come, they'd, they'd play Belfast, they might play Dublin, they'd play Kilkenny, and then they'd play Cork. That'd be it, and then they'd leave. So Kilkenny used to be on circuit for a while as well, bands passing through from the UK as well. Um, so it really was um, quite a, a, a really, it was, it was a hot place to be in a band at that time. And through coincidence or whatever, there were three bands, us, My Little Funhouse and Engine Alley, who all managed to garner uh, uh, a lot of attention. And we all got major label record deals as well from a small town in the southeast of Ireland. is a very extraordinary thing to, to, to happen. Um, at the time, it was very, very unusual. Hasn't happened since um, and probably won't happen again. But that is what happened. But even though the three bands were kind of unrelated, we like we didn't hang out with My Little Funhouse, we didn't hang out with Engine Alley. They all we all did our own separate things. You know, we weren't all hanging out together. It's just one massive coincidence. Um, so the fact that we were all from Kilkenny, um, it's uh, I, I don't know really why that was. But nevertheless, as I said a little bit earlier, there was there was there was a heavy heavy scene in Kilkenny in terms of music that even people from outside of Dublin or, or people up in Dublin and so on recognised that Kilkenny was was a place where things were really happening. Yeah, and there's there, I mean there still is today. I'm sure you're you're aware there's like there's still loads of great bands and, and acts coming out of Kilkenny. Uh, I'm thinking even this year, rarely seen above ground has released yeah. fabulous record. Uh, and I got a great track from a girl from Kilkenny a couple of weeks ago called Elise, and a really, really, really nice track. Uh, and again, there's buckets of stuff going on in Kilkenny. There always is, and there always there always has been, and there always will. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm not saying that there's not, but I'm just saying it, the, the, just the, le- the the level to which it was brought when we us and Funhouse and all that. There was millions. There's you know there's millions of pounds being thrown at, at, at all of us. You know. Yeah, I, I heard a story and I'd like to ask you to confirm or deny it that ye essentially auditioned record companies in the pump house. Is that true? It's kind of like that. We, what, what happened was we sent out demo tapes. Um, we made one demo tape in June, I think, of 92 um, and sent them. Uh, I remember sitting in Colin Fennelly's uh, kitchen in mother's kitchen and we sent them out to record companies all over the world uh, thinking that's the end of that. Let's get on with our lives. And 
nearly every single one of them rang us back and saying they wanted to see the band. Um, we were just like gobsmacked. We were like, Jesus Christ, this is, is, is this really happening? So we organized this gig in the Pump House in Kilkenny, which was, which was, which is still there, but at the time was you know, and at the, the absolute crucible of, of live gigs at the time. And, and there was people flying in from all over the world. You know, lads arrived. There was one guy from Geffen Records. He arrived in a limousine and actually the guy who signed My Little Funhouse and Guns N' Roses, Tom Zutaw was his name. But there was people from all over the place arrived at the, there was half half the crowd was a and r people from record labels um and a, a lot of them weren't interested and uh so the next day though um i woke up with a hangover and uh my, my mammy came up to me and said listen there's a guy on the phone from mercury records he says he wants to meet you downtown in Kilkenny now so we are yeah, okay yeah let's see let's go so we I, I gathered the boys rang and said look this guy wants to meet us so we met in a pub time this lovely pub in Kilkenny and he said there and then uh, offered us a, he took out a, 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 you know a, pretty much took out a, a checkbook and a contract and said listen we want to sign you to a record to, for, for a you know six album deal let's go with this we believe in you and we just went okay fair enough let's, that, let's do it and that was it we signed Mercury Records um, you know a few weeks later and found ourselves living in London. It was that quick and just crazy. It was, it was like winning the lottery, literally. So I'm in conversation with Cormac Battle. Uh, Curb Dog are re-releasing their uh, first, their two albums. Uh, Curb Dog, Curb Dog released originally in 94 and On The Turn originally released in 1997. They're getting nice, fresh vinyl pressings. Um, Cormac, I... I when I, whenever I think of Curb Dog, I think of that kind of '90s American sound. Um, yeah. And I don't. I mean that as a as a compliment, by the way. I mean as a kind of that kind of heavy grunge sound, along the lines of Soundgarden or Alice in Chains. Um, yeah. But what what I was I was just kind of looking up some notes about Curb Dog uh, ahead of the interview, and I saw you being referred to online as a metal band. How yeah. would you describe Curb Dog sound? <laughs> Yeah, like I certainly wouldn't describe this as a metal band, not 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 at all. I think that's in, totally inaccurate. You know, grunge. Yes, you know that wouldn't be wrong. That that we were that kind of a band, um, but I don't think we were Pearl Jam. I don't think we were we were Soundgarden. We were kind of. It was. I would have said we were we were more a band like Helmet, uh, kind of like that. Those those Sledgehammer kind of math rock, but but with melody, uh, with a lot more melody. I think that's that's what we kind of aimed to do is to 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 make these uh, these kind of you know sort of nearly mathematical sounding uh, guitar albums with walls of guitar sound, um, and then instead of screaming over the top of it by putting you know decent melodies over the top of them, um, but you know. Y- if you were to liken us to any ba- any any bands, I suppose if you'd have said to someone these guys were from Seattle, you know, it would be easily believable. No, no question about it. You worked with, I suppose, legendary producer uh, Jack Endino, who would would have been instrumental in shaping that sound, uh, that that that, that sub pop sound. He worked with yeah. Honey and the likes of Soundgarden. Coming from Ireland in that mid '90s space to go and work with this guy, who I'm sure you you would have been well aware, you would have been listening to those records. H- how did it feel working with somebody like that to go from playing in the pump house to recording in in the states? Well, firstly, like as I said, all of this was like winning the lottery. You now, four four lads from Kilkenny suddenly we find ourselves, you know, in a in a room, you know, recording an album with the guy who did, as you said, Mud Honey. 
um, all those those key albums at the time, um, uh, Nirvana's Bleach, um, you know, load, load, loads of that kind of sub pop stuff. It was pinch yourself moment. Um, but it, uh, so we did that record with 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 Jack and Dino in 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 this fancy studio in Wales. As I said, there was oh, loads Wales, of money sorry. sloshing around. Yeah, that, the first one we did in Wales in, in Rockfield Studios. Sepultura, oh. by the way, were next door. They are at Metal Band. <laughs> yeah. They were in the other studio beside us. They were recording as well. So mm. a lot of what they were doing for, for the album is called Chaos AD. We were kind of hearing that as well. And that, that started to land on our album as well because we were sort of copying them a small bit. But um, but it was extraordinary. Like the whole thing is, when I look back, is, is, it's surreal. It's, it's, sometimes I pinch myself and go, did this really happen? Because like then we went on to do, uh, on the turn, the second album, we did do that one in America in the same we kind of it, this wasn't on purpose but nirvana's um world seemed to kind of pop up and become infused with ours as we went along our own little journey because mm. we did the uh the second album in a city uh, in a in a in a studio called sound city where nevermind was recorded yeah um and we ended up staying in the same apartments in in la burbank where nirvana were staying i only found out this afterwards when when they were recording nevermind as well so and that was an extra. I did know we did know that never mind had been recorded there a couple of a few years beforehand. So to stand, even to just look, Rob, to stand in that room mm. and you know record our own album in the room where that record was made um, was just to to a bunch of twenty four year olds was just crazy. It was like, what is someone has lost their mind here? Someone <laughs> has someone has lost their mind and given us the opportunity. To, to 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 do this, but it it as far as I know, this did happen. Dave Grohl from from Nirvana and the Foo Fighters, he made a great documentary about Sound City uh, in Los Angeles there a few years back. I don't know if you've seen it, but one of the things that he talks about in the documentary is the sound of the drums in that room. Whatever there's something about it, there's some alchemy or some sort of intangible magic that drums sound awesome in the, in that Sound City studio. When you walked in there and you started playing, did you get a did you get a sense of of there's something sweet, there's something magical about this space? 100%. Like this is this studio was not in fancy, you know, Holly, uh, a fancy part of Hollywood or, you know. <laughs> this place this place was in a in a bit of a dump on an industrial estate on the on the on a dodgy in a dodgy part of LA. Mm-hmm. Um so you know, you go in and there is this big, huge, giant room now that you don't really see anymore, recording studio. So it was like a warehouse where you set up the drums. So I can understand what he's talking about. Um, but to, to, just to, to recount what I was saying again, I, we, were, I was, we were all less blown away by that, but, but just by the fact of where we had actually arrived and where we were, it was like, oh my God. I mean, I was, you know, you, you could just imagine that. Um, I was, you know, sitting on this little smelly couch behind the, the mixing desk and saying, "This is where Nirvana, this is where Kurt Cobain, Chris Novoselic, and Dave Grohl were sitting, listening back to their, just listening to the, to to their takes of Nevermind, and we were doing exactly the same thing. So there was magic in the room, and you know, the the room was full of all sorts of kind of ghosts. Uh, pardon the expression, but it, it was uh, even going back with albums like uh, you know, I think Rumours and Fleetwood Mac and various other kind of iconic records from Tom Petty and so on. But but it's just it was just you know the whole thing was was pinch me pinch me pinch me the whole way along. But nevertheless, I think what we did we did we did knuckle down to some real work, and I think 
the results of that were borne out on the the album on the turn. You know, I think it's I I I didn't listen to it for years and years and years, but having listened to it, you know, relatively recently again, um, I still think it sounds pretty amazing. Karma, could be interesting to ask you about the songwriting process. Um, I, I I always wondered what a kind of an acoustic curb dog album might sound like, because it's funny that you mentioned you talked about the songs being quite melodic. I can imagine all of those songs being played on an acoustic guitar. So even something like Dry Riser or or even some, some, something like Sally from, from the second album. I can mm. imagine that being played on an acoustic guitar. And I don't mean in a, in a kind of an unplugged kind of way. I just mean, it. would you have written in, in, on acoustic or, 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 or how did it work? Not generally, no. Uh, most of the time I... I I was the chief songwriter in the in the band, and ma- mainly what I would do is um, some songs would come together. Like Sally, I remember sitting on the edge of my mother's bed because um, with with a guitar, probably an acoustic actually, and it's so easy. It was just like down, up and down, up and down, two frets, and I just hummed along to it, and that's how that song came about very very quickly. But most of the other tracks, um, they were nearly written instrumentally, so the whole track would be there, you know verse, chorus, verse, middle eight, verse, chorus, verse, or whatever. And then that would be it. The song, we'd have, we'd, we would know the song before there was any lyrics or melodies put on top of them from start to finish. And then I would take the, the song and um, do the whole melody element uh, and uh, on top of what we had already. So it was, that was how the songs generally came to being. It was an unusual way of writing, writing music. But so... In some some respects, it was that the, we enjoyed just playing the music so much, but we understood uh, how the song would have to work in terms of choruses and verses. So we just like just like playing them, and then we, sometimes at the end, I go, "Ah, oh, shite! Now I have to go and write the music. I have to sing over these. I have to, <laughs> I have to, I have to come up with vocal melodies." And that I think that in some ways worked in in because I I was under pressure then to kind of come up with vocal melodies that sort of worked against the music sometimes. And I think that in, in doing that and not following the obvious way that you would, you could lazily sing along to them. Um, it created two sort of melodies going at the same time, which sometimes made our music sound very heavy, but yet very melodic at the same time too. Yeah. And well, it, it clearly worked as well because I mean, the albums are still held in high regard. I mean, I, I, I remember Curb Dog, the first album, um, particularly because I, I, I'm i going to own up here now and uh, tell you that I copied that from a friend of mine uh, from the old days where it used to fit on one side of a C90. Uh, so that was great. But I did buy... On ah, the good turn. for it, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I did buy... I had it on the turn on cassette back in the day. Uh, again, it's, yeah. it, it's a different a, a different time. But again, one of the things... I remember listening to that on my Walkman going in and out to, to college and the, the guitar sound on it it was particularly appealing and even revisiting the records again now I know it's on Spotify it's, it's not on the vinyl yet uh, or, or I haven't got it on the vinyl yet um, but is is that heavily processed guitar sound the way the guitars are layered up it creates this wall of sound I'm just very intrigued in how you how you, how you achieve that it, it was kind of mental really because we had there was so much guitar situation going on like in the studio, Garth Richardson, who incidentally had rec- he he just come off the back of the Rage Against the Machine album, 
time as well. So like work again, we were like working with this super producer. But anyway, he we had it was like a guitar shop in the studio. We had like every conceivable amp, decent amp that you could you could you could get your hands on at the time, and they were all mic'd up. So there was about ten or eleven amps mic'd up. You know, Mezzabuggies, Marshalls, um, uh, you know. What, what other you know orange uh, you know vox ac30s every offenders they were all there and they were all mic'd up and i was plugged in to them all at the same time it was like spinal tap <laughs> and we just mixed mixed them all together you know it's not something you could do now because you know there was probably about 50 grand's worth of amps there um we they were all rented and so through messing around and all that kind of stuff we, you know we, we we were happening up upon these guitar sounds that were really were out of this world quite literally um so and it was a lot of time spent on on all that and sometimes i look back and i think you know maybe that was a bit of a waste of time because some the guitar not to get too nerdy on you but the guitar if you if you if the guitar the too much guitar takes up a lot of the sound and it doesn't leave room for voice it doesn't leave room for, for, for you know for for a lot of other instruments so sometimes you know i think we just about managed to keep them far, uh, not just not overloaded too much, even though it was Spinal Tap, the amount of uh, guitar amps that we were using at the time. It was, I could have stood in front of it and it would have taken all your clothes off when you hit the chord. It was so ridiculous and so loud. It was bananas. It would have been like the start of Back to the Future. Ex- it was exactly pick. like that. <laughs> it was dangerous. Yeah, it was great. It was, well, it was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, whatever it is, there's something about it. Whatever way the sound is shaped or compressed or or whatever, because the the vocals really do sit over the top in a wonderful fashion. And again, something like you can really hear it well on a, a track like Mexican Wave, even. Um, yeah, it's a bit of luck, really, as well. There's a lot. There's there's luck involved in making records, and there was a lot of money involved in making that record as well. So. Um, you know, and a lot of time we spent four months making it and then it was mixed twice. Um, and so like, you know, I, I know you can't, as they say, if it was, if it went down sounding badly, they say you can't polish a turd, but it was, you know, everything was done meticulously. Garth, the producer turned us all into proper musicians by the end of that. Cause we couldn't play for shit before we went in really. <laughs> uh, we weren't, we were, you know, none of us admit to have been you know, A1, uh, certainly not by LA standards, uh, musicians. But by the time we came out, you know, he had us very much whipped into shape um, by by the amount of times we had to just go over and do it again, 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 again. But like, you know, it was all worth it in the end. Mm. Now, in that, around about the same time, not long after On The Turn was released, you, you were dropped by a record label. Yeah. And I mean, again, so we're talking about a group of young lads, Frankel Kenny, who are winning the lottery and then suddenly the rug is pulled out from Undy. Mm. How, how did that feel? Terrible. I mean, I, okay, sorry, when I say how did it feel, I know it feels terrible. You, you weren't jumping for joy. But I mean... Awful. Can, can you put... Yeah, I mean, if, if you now, as Cormac Battle of 2020, could talk to Cormac Battle from 1997, what would you say to yourself about this? Well, what I would say to myself about that was, I think, you know... I can't speak for the other lads, but I didn't put, I could have put a lot more work into what we did. You know, once a lot of the time we'd come up with 10 songs and go, right, that's it. Album ready. We can make an album now. When we should have been going in with 30 songs. And, you know, looking back, 
could have treated it a bit more seriously. We we didn't take we were just having a laugh all the time. Um, and you know, we were taking the piss out of ourselves. We just, you know, I think in maybe in some ways that we didn't work hard enough to get it, that we lost it um easier as well. Um, but I suppose looking back on myself then I could say, you know, it is showbiz and a lot of things, there's a lot of chance you can have the way I look at it is we had the right record uh, at the wrong time, you know, if it come out two years beforehand or two years afterwards, things probably would have been different, but there's a lot, you know, you can have, there's the, the road is strewn with, with, with good, good albums that just didn't land at the right time for whatever reason. And uh, that's kind of what happened to us. And also, you know, I, f I, I felt very disappointed and damaged by the whole experience for many, many years, you know, um, um, but now I kind of look back at it as the, an experience that, you know, was out of this world, regardless of the fact that we didn't send, sell 10 million records. We had an experience unlike 99.999% of the population and got to do that for like nearly 10 years. So it was, it was fab, but, you know, having, the, ha, having said that, you know, selling 50 million albums would have been a bonus, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, nobody's going to argue with that really. No. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, but Although I would be dead by now if that was the case. <laughs> Definitely. Um, right, well, after Curb Dog split up, I mean, it's not like you, you, you just hung up and, and that was the end of it. I mean, you went on to, to uh, form Wilt and uh, you were working away there and then kind of Curb Dog have periodically reformed. Uh, I remember seeing you at Oxygen uh, to... to yeah, 19, 2005, 2005 or yeah, yeah, something like that. Um, I, when I say I remember seeing you at Oxygen, I was there, I was at the gig, I have vague memories, but like all music mm. festivals, eh, it's a little bit sketchy. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> but the thing for myself and, and the lads, my, my friends, we were just delighted that there was Curb Dog, they were, you know, they were back together. Um, and you've also, you released a single there a couple of years ago, Electricity, which was full on heavy again. There was no, you weren't pulling your punches. No. Um, like, now the albums are being re-released. Would you ever think about, maybe there's another, maybe there's another Curb Dog record here? Well, do you know what? I would, yeah. If circumstances were different, you know, like I've a, we've all got families now, we've all got lives, we've all got jobs and so on. And, you know, we're, none of us are naive enough to know that we can, you know, go off and, you know, drop everything and make records. And, um, you know, we have responsibilities in our lives. I know it's a bit, bit boring. It's a bit non-rock and roll, but they are the facts. Um, so, yes, it would be lovely to do so. But, you know, in all honesty, Rob, if that were to, that were to come around, you'd need, I, I wouldn't do it unless someone came along and said, here's 10 million quid <laughs> go out and make a record and give up your jobs otherwise i don't i i doubt it will ever happen to be quite honest but you never know though you never know the way technology is these days um you know people you, it, stranger things have happened you can you can make records now by not having to decamp to you know uh these um uh, residential studios for four months you, that's not the way a lot of records are made anymore so I, I wouldn't put completely put a full stop on it but you know um, it's unlikely but it, but it could happen yeah well I hope that Curb Dog don't grow old gracefully uh, and, and nah, if you that, do come that, back out again on, yeah. no you come back out all guns blazing um, it will be fantastic I mean in an ideal world with the albums being reissued you'd be expecting some gigs obviously that's not happening right now and, and is unlikely to happen for you know for, for yeah the, I think twenty. Future. I think early 2022 is what we've we've uh, decided on just to be safe about 
Oh, really? You, you are going to do some gigs? I think so, yeah. Around 20, early 2022, just, we were, you know, we were going to do some gigs around these uh, albums, but um, mm. that we, that we, there's some, that we might, there's some unreleased stuff and there's talk about doing something with that as well. So we might tie that in with a, with a tour uh, in spring of 2022. Yeah. It's fabulous. In our Give Zimmer your- frames. <laughs> Look, the uh, Rolling Stones can do it. Jesus, we're like teenagers yeah. compared to those guys. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, but you don't have the armies of technicians no, and doctors. You yeah, know, doctors. Uh, <laughs> the, the six million dollar man, the six billion dollar yeah, man. I'd say, yeah, is more yeah, likely. Come um, here, uh, Cormac. Like, um, with with respect to the vinyl reissues of uh, the two Curb Dog albums, Curb Dog, Curb Dog, and On the Turn, uh, when are they available, and what's the best way to get them? Uh, well, as far as I'm not very good at this stuff, Rob, the PR end of things, but uh, <laughs> you know, Google it. I think if you go to CurbDog.com, um, you can you can you can get them there. That's that okay. that's that's the best I know. That's I know it's I'm not I'm not a great PR man for the band. It never was. I uh, never was good at the sales end of things, but curbdog.com, I think you'll find everything you need to you need there. And do there. go there. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Right, well, listen, I can't leave you go without talking to you kind of in a busman's holiday about music, about other people's music, because obviously after Curb Dog and after Wilt, uh, you're, you would be known to Manny as a DJ on 2FM. Uh, yeah. You had one of the best named shows ever, The Battle Axe. It was always guilty. I was always envious of that one. It's a great name. Well, it was just kind of like it was. It, it was an easy. My name never stops giving, you know. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of people think that I, that the name was made up for the radio, just this silly kind of rocky name, you know, battle. <laughs> but you know, it wasn't obviously. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. So, uh, right. So, so come here. I, I'd like to ask you just what what do you enjoy in music? Because I mean, I suppose before music and DJ, you're probably a music fan first. Yeah, yeah, completely. So, what do you enjoy when you're when when you're when you're getting tracks in, somebody is submitting tracks to you for the Cormac Battle Show. What what do you listen out for? Um, I, I I suppose I'm look I'm I'm still I, I'm never going to be into pop music. I never was, never never will be. Um, so pop music is just not my thing. It's always mm-hmm. kind of like the, it's always kind of guitars indie. Like I do like um some some I like electronic music, but in you know the in the kind of dead mouse chemical brothers that kind of sort of there's there's a rock element to what they do um mm. and uh I, you know i i i have it's it's such a cliche but i have an eclectic taste you know it's not i'm i don't just play tool do you know what i mean i don't yep. just play um all grunge records and and that kind of stuff you know i'm into some of some of the uh, the urban stuff that's that's going on around ireland uh, at the moment like like malachy and and um um and uh, mango and mathman um and and various other other things as well just to give you an idea but like of course i do, you know if someone if like say a perfect circle brought a new uh, album i'd play something from them or mm. you know like you know royal blood or yeah i like you know the, the stuff like royal blood all twins that mm. it, it kind of all sort of inhabits the kind of the same world if there's a, like a touch of melancholy in it too that helps <laughs> you know um if you had right so based on your years of experience on on both sides of the fence as a poacher and a gamekeeper if you had a bit of advice for a young band or young musician coming up what would it be I think it would be to just work really hard 
work really, 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 really hard and uh, treat it like, in some respects, a job. Get up in the morning. Don't stay in bed like I did until two o'clock and wait for it all to happen. Um, you've got to make it happen yourself. And it's all about having better songs than everybody else. And that's what matters. It, it, and it's about a good, if you, you know, you have to, you have to be able to play a song. Like you said earlier, you have to be able to play your song on an acoustic and it needs to be able to stand up as a fantastic song. Um, I think, I think that's it. You know, songs will out in the end. Um, I, th- that's my, my firm belief, but, uh, you know, believe in yourself and all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to say all that kind of stuff because, you know, gen- generally, you know, people do believe in themselves when they're when they're doing this kind of thing for, from the beginning. Just work really, really hard and don't be lazy. That's all. I, I like that rather than some sort of X Factor type platitude about following your dreams. And yeah, all that rubbish yeah. Make your dreams it. happen. They won't yeah. they won't come to you. Well, they, they kind of did for us, but uh just, just make, you have to make it happen yourself. Don't wait for Simon Kell to come and sort your life out for you. <laughs> Excellent, um, Cormac. I, I, I think we've we've got everything there. Um, the no worries, albums. Yeah. That, that 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 that's wonderful chat. The albums are available uh, on vinyl. Go to curbdog.com and you can check them out there. Uh, when the shops reopen, I'm sure there might be some in in, in some of the the record shops around when when they do reopen, hopefully before Christmas. And uh, we look out for some Curb Dog gigs in 22, hopefully. Uh, and maybe some reissues of other materials as well. That'd be great. Yeah. Um, Cormac, thank you so much for the chat. Really appreciate it. Wish you all the best with the reissues. Um, I, I I hope they do exceptionally well and maybe spur you on to produce something else. It'd be great. Oh, absolutely. When, when I cash in that million dollar check from these reissues, then I think we'll get back <laughs> into the studio for number three. <laughs> Brilliant. Irish Beats with Rob O'Connor on Beat 102-103.